Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, she's covered Washington, D.C. for decades and is out with a book chronicling the long and sometimes misunderstood life of arguably one of the most powerful first ladies in our nation's history. We are thrilled to have Karen Tumulty here. She is a political columnist for The Washington Post and author of the new book, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. It details Reagan's life from her childhood as the often abandoned daughter of an actress through Reagan's time in Hollywood, Sacramento, and Washington, D.C. But first, back here in California, at least, we want to bring in our own Guy Marzarati, who's been doggedly covering all the twists and turns of the recall attempt against Governor Gavin Newsom. Hey, Guy. Hey. Wearing a couple hats today, as, often as always. <laughs> I don't know if you heard your shout out last week. We, uh, we don't, we don't nice. like it when you leave. We don't like it. <laughs> that was nice. Well, so guy, tell us, fill us in. What are the latest rumors and innuendos around like when this election could actually happen? Right. So this is something that's kind of sprung up kind of recently, this idea that the recall, which we had all kind of thought about as a fall election, could potentially happen a lot sooner. And this kind of started a couple weeks ago when State Senator Steve Glazer, who is in the legislature, but his background is in political strategizing. He was a key advisor to uh, former Governor Jerry Brown. So he's always thinking about the politics of it. Um, And he basically said, you know, Newsom um, would be advantaged by having this election as soon as possible. And there's actually within the law a lot of flexibility on when the recall election could happen. There's rules that didn't exist uh, back in 2003 that can really make the the timeline malleable. In in the biggest case, there is kind of a two-month block to just assess the costs of the recall election. And I think if you're eyeing, like, where's the flexibility, that is where this could really stretch or really condense. Well, and you talked uh, to uh, the Senate Budget Committee Chair, Nancy Skinner, this week when they laid out their proposal for the budget. Uh, and you know, what did she say? You asked her, like, how long is it going to take? Right. So they, you know, first the Department of Finance has 30 days to assess the cost of the recall. And then it goes to Skinner's uh, budget committee and they get to kind of review that cost. There are obviously, like any election, there is going to be some cost. Counties have to put on the election. They have to send every registered voter a ballot. Um, And I asked Skinner, you know, you have this 30 days. How are you thinking about it? Are you going to use all of it? And she basically said, we've already been assessing the cost. We already have an idea. It may not be necessary to take the 30 days. And so I think that's just, again, kind of the groundwork is being laid. To screw up everybody's summer vacation. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Check your cancellation (laughs) policy. Uh, But, you know, the the fact that this could happen maybe early September instead of, you know, closer to November, as we're expecting, I think it also speaks to this kind of dual role that all of these state officials have who have some prescribed role in the recall election. 
yes, uh, they are all Democrats. Yes, they all want Gavin Newsom to keep his job. But then they do have these responsibilities, whether you're the lieutenant governor who's picking the date of the election, whether you're the secretary of state setting the, you know, the thresholds on who can get on the ballot and how, or whether you're the legislature and you get to have this timeline of review, they have these actual responsibilities that they have to carry out as part of this unique recall process. So you mentioned Glazer. Um, he, of course, was a political advisor to Jerry Brown when he ran for office for the second time around 2010, um, <clears throat> helped push Prop 30, which was these big tax increases. I mean, he's a pretty smart political mind. Like, what's the political case for doing this earlier? Because a lot of times we think, well, Democrats might do better if it's something people are, you know, more people are coming out, essentially. Like, that's always the difference between a presidential election and a midterm, right, for Democrats. And how early are we talking about it? Anyway? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, Scott's I th- checking his plane tickets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I th- well, if you condense those, you know, there's the two 30-day review periods. If you condense those to two days, then you're shaving two months off of the, the recall uh, timeline. So that's, you know, maybe potentially early September. Um, but your question, Marisa, I mean, I think, yes, I, I think when this was first being thought out, we thought the best thing for the governor would be a long recall timeline, right? Get past the vaccination stage, get past, you know, getting kids back in school, have it in November when things are, you know, quote unquote, back to normal. And I think this is just a result of how quickly things have returned to a semblance of normal and how people are feeling you know, there there really hasn't been any growing support for the recall. People are feeling good. Newsom's poll numbers look good. And I think what, how Glazer is thinking about this is let's vote before a fire breaks out. I mean, I think that's really his approach. There's things that could happen, unforeseen events. Why not take advantage of the interim period or the, you know, the current period we're in when Newsom seems to be in, in good position? Well, and even I think worse than wildfires, which, you know, people don't generally tend to blame the elected officials for, uh, is rolling blackouts right. or, you know, these power shutoffs, which he has said is on him. He's taking responsibility for making sure the lights are on. The only sort of uh, what I would say fly in the potential ointment here is, you know, anyone who tries to scope out the way politics is going to unfold is always surprised, you know, and there may be something that could pop up in September oh, that absolutely. they didn't anticipate that oh, yeah. might be nice to kind of like, let's wait a couple of months but to vote. On absolutely. the other hand, like there could be something in October. So like, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. sort of like they, they can't win. I mean, and I think. Right. And I have a I have a great example of that. These all these recall rules were put in place by the legislature in an attempt to save then state senator Josh Newman when he was facing recall. They put in all these flexible rules. And he still got recalled. So you just you just never know. But then he got reelected. Right. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) politics. Well, we're going to talk more about that with our next guest. You can never predict anything. Guy Marzarati, thank you so much. Check out Guy. He has more to to day job. Yeah. He has more to say on this uh, on Friday's episode of the KQED podcast, The Bay. He'll get way deeper into this. All right. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be joined by Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty. She just wrote a biography of Nancy Reagan. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more 
all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer and joined today by Washington Post columnist and longtime national political writer Karen Tumulty. She just wrote a biography of one of the nation's perhaps most controversial first ladies entitled The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Karen, welcome to The Breakdown. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you. We've actually kind of been like trading text all week as weekend as we read this book last week being like, oh, my gosh, can you believe this and that? Um, so we thought we'd start with the kind of 30,000 foot question, which is why this book? Why now? Like, what is it that people three decades after the Reagans left the White House, you know, th that makes them still relevant and particularly Nancy Reagan? Well, you know, it was really interesting. This book wasn't my idea. Simon and Schuster, my publisher, came to me a few months after she died and, and said, you know, we're thinking we'd like a, a biography of Nancy Reagan. Do you want to write it? And she had always struck me as somebody who was a really complicated person. And, and so I had assumed from the outset that she was going to be sort of an interesting figure. But uh, what I didn't know was that it was going to take me four and a half years to finish this book because it turned out to be so complex. And every time you would, you know, peel off one layer, there were 10 more. But I think what I what I began to realize about two years in and what I think ultimately I realized was the purpose of this book was that she really had an influence um, on her, the political rise of one of the 20th century's most influential figures and really a very, very big influence on the success of his presidency and not just as his advisor. I mean, she had, she actually influenced some of the biggest policies of his administration. And then ultimately uh, when, when Ronald Reagan becomes incapacitated by Alzheimer's so soon after he leaves the presidency, it really does fall on Nancy Reagan to guard and shape the legacy. And so I realized that if I could pull this book off, if I could write the kind of book that I wanted to write, it really would be an entirely new way of looking at the entire Reagan era, because I do think she was way overdue for a reassessment. Well, and their relationship was uh, so extraordinary, which we'll talk more about. But, uh, you know, we had heard a lot about Nancy Reagan, but I'm, in the research that you did here in California and back in Washington, what, what surprised you about her? Um, beyond the complexity, just how astute she was about what it was going to take for him to succeed. In fact, I opened the book not with my own words, but with those of Reagan biographer, Lou Cannon, who wrote that Reagan always knew where he wanted to go, but she had a much better sense of what it was gonna take to get there. And I really think that as people like former Secretary of State George Shultz told me, James Baker, who was the White House Chief of Staff, she really in a lot of ways had better instincts than he did about the people around him. And if, if she believed somebody 
wasn't serving him well, uh, they tended not to last for very long in their jobs. And that the real conundrum, though, was that even while she was so incredibly astute and on the mark about what was in his interest, she could be just completely clueless about her own image. And she just kept stumbling into one mess after another that was of her own making. So that was sort of the, the sort of complexity of Nancy Reagan to me. Well, that seems like a good sort of pivot to her own childhood, because it does seem like so much of her personality and really how she operated as a wife, but also as this political wife, sort of stemmed from her early childhood. She was felt very abandoned by her mother, who was a working actress and would often leave her for long periods of time with other family members. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and just how you see that kind of shaping the Nancy Reagan like we all saw on the national stage? Um, she, her childhood was, it's, the early years especially, was incredibly um, unsettled. Um, she, she spent the first, essentially the first eight years of her life yearning for her absent mother, yearning for an intact, normal family. And as, as her son Ron told me, that really put a, a sort of shadow on her spirit that, that never lifted. I mean, it left her with lifelong anxiety, uh, a, a lifelong sense, a fear of abandonment that, you know, no matter how well things were going, that the bottom could drop out at, at any minute. And certainly two months into her husband's presidency, it, that seems to almost come true when she almost loses him to a would-be assassin's bullet. And so she is, um, she is driven by this incredible insecurity, but also this this sort of fearlessness when she senses that there is some threat to the happiness and the wholeness that she and Ronald Reagan, both of them coming from these, you know, really difficult childhoods, finally found in each other. You know, there are a lot of people in public life, in fact, former presidents who had, you know, similar kinds of childhoods. And I'm thinking of Barack Obama, you know, who didn't meet his father until very late in life. He was sort of shunted off with his mother's parents, his grandparents for a lot of his uh, youth. Um, and he channeled that into becoming a good parent, you know, wanting to really be a good parent and have a stable <laughs> household. But, you know, both Nancy and Ronnie didn't seem to really take to being parents very much. How do you, how do you square that? I mean, the, the fact that they did have both of them really in different ways, difficult childhoods, but really were not like parents of the year. Yeah, it was, um, as, as Patty, her daughter said at Nancy Reagan's own funeral, that, that her parents were bound so closely together that it was like everyone else, they were, they were a closed circle and it was just sort of like everyone else kind of floated around them on the outside. And um, I, I do think that uh, Nancy Reagan herself would acknowledge, she said, all I ever wanted was to be a good wife and a good mother, but I guess I succeeded more at the first than at the latter. And the dedication to her own memoir is to Ronnie, who always understood, and to my children, who I hope will understand. So, that, I mean, she, this was you know, something that she was certainly aware of. And, and I do at several points in the, in the book return to the very deep dysfunction of this blended family. There were two children from Ronald Reagan's first marriage to, to Jane Wyman, another actress, 
And there were two children from the Reagan's own marriage. And all four of them were sort of left to kind of find their own way in, in the shadow of this, this, you know, this epic figure who was their father. Yeah. And I mean, something that struck me, you know, speaking about her desire to kind of fulfill this, like, you know, perfect family vision of America, right? I mean, she was very into image. She was clearly, I mean, she pursued Ronald Reagan for, I think, years before they finally got married. But before that, she did go to college. She went to Smith, right? And she was there at the same time as Betty Friedman. That really struck me that she was at this college at this, you know, this at the same time as this just paragon of feminism and yet i mean so different from her feminist contemporaries like why do you think that is do you think that's back to the family stuff or is that just kind of her personality you know i think it was the sort of um it was also it was partly her her image of you know the ideal situation you know the the mid-century ideal role of being a wife and a mother but the, the irony there is that you see this woman who seems to represent everything that the feminists are rebelling against. But if you see how she operates behind the scenes, right. rarely have I ever seen a, a woman who has been so confident of her own power. I mean, she was a feminist in a lot of ways in that sense, right, that she was like kind of driving the train. I, I think she would have rejected that label, but certainly, um, you know, she was someone who almost never set foot in the West Wing when her husband was president. But if if she was unhappy, everyone there knew it. And if somebody was not on her good side, as I said, they tended not to last for very long in their jobs. Um, Nancy Reagan, for instance, was one of the reasons that Ronald Reagan went through a half dozen national security advisors. One thing that I opened the book with uh, a scene that George Schultz had told me about in an interview of how determined she was to see her husband push for a relationship with the Soviet Union and how she herself was a force in making that happen. But, you know, he was surrounded by a bunch of hawkish hardliners, uh, you know, people who believe that no such thing as a working relationship with Moscow could ever happen. Hmm. And um, as a result, you know, she if she saw somebody standing in the way of what she thought was her husband's historic purpose, uh, she she tended to make life pretty uncomfortable for them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking today with Washington Post columnist Karen Tumulty. Her new book is called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Bringing it back to California, Karen, um, you know, 1964, Reagan is out in front for Barry Goldwater, who, of course, gets crushed by LBJ. And it's not clear what his path forward is. His sort of days in Hollywood are, are behind him. Uh, and you seem to imply in the book that neither Ronnie nor Nancy's really saw a life in politics for themselves. Um, how did that change? Like who, which of the two of them really, you know, was, was the first to say, you know what, this is really where we should go here? Well, Reagan had, during his years as a, a pitch man, essentially for General Electric, he had traveled the country. And that this is, we're talking about the mid 50s through the early 60s. And he had really gotten a feel for, um, middle America, for the people who would later become known as the Reagan Democrats. 
But it wasn't until he gives this nationally televised speech on the eve of the election that, that Barry Goldwater loses in a landslide that other people begin to understand the, the qualities in him that the country might find appealing. So after the election, the, the Republican Party is you know shattered by this defeat. Uh, a bunch of sort of um, big donors in the party come to Ronald Reagan and make this kind of audacious suggestion that this, this movie actor think about running for governor of California. And it seemed like a preposterous idea at the time that he could defeat an incumbent governor, Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father. But um, Reagan ended up being sort of exactly, I think, the person that a lot of, uh, especially people in California, you know, who were sort of unsettled by the violence on campuses, unsettled by all the unrest that was going on in the mid 60s, uh, turned to Ronald Reagan. And that really sets him on his path. And the other thing that I, I came across in my research was that Reagan was actually having me meetings with his advisors to talk about running for president in 1966, before he has even been inaugurated as governor. Um, it was really sort of uh, once this once this rocket got started, I mean, it it, you know, their ambitions grew very, very fast. Yeah. I mean, but before. Well, he does end up running sort of prematurely. <laughs> well, in, in 68. But before that, I mean, they get to Sacramento. It's just such a different place than, you know, the Hollywood, the glitz and glamour, the the sunshine of L.A. Um, and, and it seems like, you know. She was very different, Nancy Reagan, from first ladies before her. How so? And and what kind of influence did she exercise in that first go around of, of you know, the executive's wife? You know, I think those those eight years in Sacramento were pretty rocky ones for her. She, uh, you know, suddenly found herself in a world where, you know, she she didn't understand the expectations. She'd come out of the movie studios where essentially the press would write whatever the the publicist told them to write. And then she, um, you know, she, she didn't like Sacramento at first at all. She, every weekend she could, she would be uh, going back to LA to be among her, you know, among her friends. Um, and so she, um, so, you know, it was a really rough time for her and she really didn't understand that in politics, there were just a different set of expectations. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and this, the, when they left office, of course, they come from Hollywood, and then shortly after he leaves the governor's office, he comes out against a ballot measure in California, the Briggs Initiative, which would have banned gay teachers. And, I, you know, you, you put that next to what he did as president or didn't do, which is he didn't talk about AIDS for years um, until the epidemic was raging and, you know, Rock Hudson, their friend, had died of AIDS. Like, how do you like what role did Nancy Reagan have in in all that or other things that were going on, you know, beneath the surface, behind the scenes? Well, um, for one thing, it really did shock everybody when Ronald Reagan came out against it, especially shocked conservatives when he basically, you know, he wrote an op-ed saying, you know, I'm, I'm against homosexuality, but it should not be treated like a disease that you can catch from someone else that, you know, that people shouldn't be barred from teaching in the public school system if they were gay. 
And his opposition to this initiative helped sink it. But um, I do think that, and, and I have a long, complicated chapter on the whole AIDS epidemic in the book. He did not actually say the name of the disease until his second term in office, by, by which point tens of thousands of people had died from it. But I do think there's a lot of evidence, and I spell it out in the book, that, that as belated as it was, Nancy Reagan had a sense earlier than her husband did of, of what was going on, of the, his need to address it. Uh, she waged some pretty big battles within the White House over his first speech that he would give on the topic. In fact, uh, she went out and got her own speechwriter for it. And when Reagan finally belatedly, and again, I, we should be clear here that the handling of the AIDS epidemic will forever be a scar on his legacy. But when he finally appoints a federal commission to, um, to look into the, how the government has handled the AIDS epidemic, um, it is Nancy Reagan over the opposition of a lot of people around her husband who insists that this commission of experts include at least one member who is openly gay. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, she didn't, you can fault her certainly for not having pushed early enough, not push, having pushed hard enough, but she was a, a counterforce to a lot of what was going on in the White House, where a lot of the, the president's more conservative advisors thought that that age should be dealt with as a, a moral crisis, not a health crisis. But I mean, that brings me to a bigger question for you, which is like, it, you know, the thesis of the book seems to be you know, just how her loyalty and devotion to Reagan was such a key to his success. But she seemed to put her own personal policy positions aside in a lot of situations. And I, I just wonder, like, how much you think she cared about the politics and the policy or how much it was just about making sure her husband succeeded? You know, her ideology was what's best for Ronald Reagan. And she that made her very, very mistrustful of sort of the hardline right-wing people around him who, as, as she would write, would rather go over the cliff with the flag flying than, than succeed. She often urged him, she offered him to, urged him to temper his rhetoric on the Soviet Union. Uh, she was an important, a crucial ally for James Baker when he was White House Chief of Staff, again, in sort of, uh, as he is fighting against the people on the right who are accusing him of not allowing Reagan to be Reagan. Um, and she she does step in at a number of places. She also wanted to him to be seen as, she, she defined success in a very conventional way. She wanted him to be respected by the establishment and not viewed as, you know, some sort of hip shooting cowboy coming in out of the West. And so she really did a lot of the networking that Ronald Reagan, and this is really quite crucial. Reagan was kind of a solitary person. He was close to exactly one person in the world and he married her. So it really fell to Nancy Reagan to be kind of the networker of the two. Karen, we're short on time, but we have to ask you about astrology. Uh, this is something <laughs> that she was in for a into for a very long time, and it didn't really come out until that biography by Joan Quigley. How, you know, how did that she fall into that? And what did people around her, you know, I'm thinking of the Jim Bakers of the world, what did, or Ronald for that matter, what did they think about that? 
Well, for one thing, both Reagans had sort of dabbled in astrology, as did a lot of people in Hollywood going back through the 1950s and even the late 1940s. But for Nancy Reagan, I think it really became a compulsion after the 1981 assassination attempt. Uh, her husband really had a, a deep religious faith. He believed that God had spared him for a purpose, and that really gave him a lot of comfort. She did not, she did not have that kind of grounding, and she was looking essentially for anything that could give her a, a feeling of control because she was just terrified that every time he left the White House, there, there was another John Hinckley out there waiting for him. So she really, it was, it was compulsive. It was not rational, but um, it did reach the point where major scheduling decisions in the Reagan White House would have to be essentially cleared with Nancy Reagan's astrologer. I, I asked uh, James Baker, how much did you know about this? And he said, well, I know about it, but I, I sort of let Michael Deaver, the deputy chief of staff, handle you know, <laughs> Well, Michael Deaver had a lot of jobs. Around he was on Mommy Watch yeah. when, she was, Managing, when he was governor. Nancy. <laughs> um, and we just have a uh, OK, I guess we got to go. We, I was going to ask about Jerry Brown because it's 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 crazy thinking that we went Brown, Reagan, Brown in California and then back to Brown. But we'll leave another it there. Day, another yes, day. Another day. Karen Tumulty, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, our engineer, Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can see what kind of trouble I'm getting up to on Twitter at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. I don't get on tr in trouble on Twitter, but I'm yeah, at Elsewhere. Lagos. Elsewhere. <laughs> Have a great one. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.